Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I'm so happy to welcome the callers and chatters to the show tonight. Well, this show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history, and it will provide you with an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and I do see several guests in the uh, chat room tonight, and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And then following the show, please continue this discussion on Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and beyond Facebook pages. In fact, please like both pages. Well, tonight's show is very interesting. I have, uh, as my guest, James Commander, and he has utilized genealogical research techniques to author a book, Love at Our Roots, How Freedom Became a Force for Change. Now, this book has been accepted into the prestigious Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture in New York, as well as the Auburn Avenue Research Library on African-American Culture and History in Atlanta, Georgia. James has lectured and he focuses his lectures on using family research to uncover empowering heritage for future generations. James Commander holds a bachelor and master's degree in arts, entertainment and media management from Columbia College at Chicago Full Sail University. He resides in Greenville, South Carolina with his family. So let me give a warm welcome to James H. Commander to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, James. Thank you, Bernice. I'm glad to be here. And I'm glad to have you. Well, James, we're going to get started with a very simple question. Please help us understand what was the catalyst that propelled you to begin your genealogical journeys? Well, first of all, after 19 years of carrying this family heirloom around like a scrapbook, I threw a, sort of like a prayer up and said, Lord, what do you want me to do with this book? You know, it's here. And I think that opened me up 
for a lot of what happened once I cracked that book back open and began to research some of the information that was inside. So I think that was the catalyst, just my openness and readiness to receive answers. And where in the world did you get a hundred year old, you said scrapbook? Yes, it's a hundred year old, it's a handmade scrapbook from my grandmother and includes a lot of information in it from her sisters, my aunts. And um, it's just, um, it's phenomenal. I can say post-emancipation all the way to, I would say up into uh, maybe into the 90s, it was a lot of information put in there. Oh, okay. Well, since you, you mentioned a lot of information, that kind of was the catalyst mm -hmm. to, to get you started. Give us a, a framework. Give Set it up for us. Tell us where did you begin your research? Give us your time frame and some of the surnames in your family tree. And I just want to say that there's a comment coming out right now that scrapbook mm -hmm. must have been a treasure trove for you. It was. And, and if I could start it off with just that, how it came into my possession, I was actually uh, unrouting in my midst of my first year at the Historical Black College and University in Georgia called Clarkland University and was visiting my great aunt Juanita Kemp's home. And she had a, a waist high stack of books and paraphernalia just sitting in the living room floor. And I asked her, well, what are you going to do with all this? She said, well, I'm donating it to the DuSable Museum of African-American History in Chicago. And of course, I'm shocked. And I said, well, what about us? You know, and she says, well, yes. look around and, and um, pick what you like. And I had one of one of my peers was there um, from college and high school. And she told him to pick out something as well. And we sort of looked through it and the heirloom, as well as some books on entrepreneurship, some of their college books um, on teaching and civil rights and just history. As much as my arms could carry in a bag of tote, I took it with me that day. And um, that's how I, I had the um, scrapbook since that time. Well, you know, it's wonderful to hear that your your uh, great aunt was at least considering donating it because it seems like she did recognize the value of the information in that scrapbook. But you were at a good place at a good time yeah, to at least to be a recipient and to want it because so many people will let the treasure go away. Well, that's one of the things that when I first opened up the book, um, two things stood out. One was a, a ticket from the World Exposition that took place in Chicago in 1933, which was significant because a lot of the who's who from around the nation in black thought participated in demonstrating to the world the intelligence and ingenuity of African-Americans. Of course, they celebrated the term Negro back then, and they had a big Negro exposition and, and a display of the DuSable Museum. And I remember as a, not the museum, but DuSable's cabin, I should say. And um, uh -huh. DuSable was the founder of Chicago as a, as a black man. And so that was important because that little ticket when I was little, I remember asking her, did you all actually go to this place in 1933? And she said, yeah, we went there several times. And so um, that reminded me that even as a child, I guess it was destiny that my interest was piqued in that type of history. So when I opened up the book, there was a program from 1929 of the Cube Theater, which was the first integrated theater in Chicago and even in the nation. And on the back of that, it had a list of names of who's who 
for patrons like Robert Abbott, found that's the founder of the Chicago Defender, Dr. Bousfield, who was one of the people who worked with um, just a lot of medical people, and um, the guy uh, Tuskegee. You know, he helped out around that. You had Judge Albert George. You had um, people like Desta Matt Nelson, Anthony Overton, Sterling North. There was just a ton of people on here. Ida B. Wells Barnett, Jesse Binger. And so people who are familiar with that history, it, it immediately grabbed me. And I asked the question, were they actually at this event? And that prompted me to look a lot more closer at that heirloom and the information that was in these pages of this book. Wow, that that's just wonderful, wonderful. Well, take us back now because I want you to give us a setting for mm -hmm. your your research and a time frame. Okay. So where did where did it begin? And mm -hmm. then give us an idea of some of the surnames that you were uh, exploring as you looked at your family history? Well, this was in 2009. Actually, I had just returned from Chicago and uh, to South Carolina, and I was looking at the book and trying to figure out what to do. And the first step was to reach out and see how many people were still alive who participated in that Cube Theater. Uh, and I reached out to a name that was Frances Dunham Catlett. And in the brochure, her name was Frances Taylor. And she married Catherine Dunham's brother, who helped establish this theater for Catherine Dunham. And this was Catherine Dunham's debut performance at this Cube Theater. And so uh, after contacting, the article was written on her because they did a book. She was 101 years old at the time. And they put me in contact with her. So, of course, that sparked the just, uh, just a whole bunch of energy and enthusiasm to outline a book, like the five chapters, what would be the subtitles. Originally, the title of the book was different, but the subtitle was always How Freedom Became a Force for Change. Okay. Okay, so take us now again to the setting the time frame and the surnames that you began to research. Well, again, that was important to the, the Durham and the Dunham was critical because this took place in Hyde Park, which is where Hyde Park, Chicago is where President Obama lives. And on that exact corner is where we stayed. And my aunt stayed around the corner. Uh, another one of my aunts stayed around the corner. We lived, my grandfather stayed maybe three blocks down from 51st and Greenwood. So the Kemp and Spalding family, which was their name, and the surnames of the family, my curiosity was how often did they interact in that community with Catherine Dunham and all of these phenomenal, who we look at as iconic arts people at that time. And so I began to zero in on those family figures who actually either went to the University of Chicago for study or they went to um, the Illinois Institute of Technology, it was called Lewis University, and just who was active during that time. And so I looked at those names. Okay, so Kemp and Spalding and yes. Chicago, but before your family got to Chicago, mm -hmm. let's begin before your family made it to Chicago, they had a beginning somewhere else. So take Absolutely. us from that journey and your research to Chicago. We're not in Chicago yet. Let's okay. go back. 
Okay, take well, us back to your beginning. Well, for, fortunately for us, because we had the funeral directories and obit obituaries, and we had spoken with the elders before, we had an idea that Birmingham, Alabama, was a great place to start. So okay. we, after zeroing in on that area and coming across some phone directories from the early 19, maybe 18, 1920s, which listed uh, a bunch of Kemp's and all of the family members that was in Birmingham, that was an excellent start. However, it went back further than even Birmingham. And okay. we came across a World War I registration card for our uncle, um, Joe. We call him Joe Rufus Kemp. And he mentioned a town called Dora, Alabama, near Patton Junction. And so we looked into that, and that led into more information coming out about the Dora, Alabama area and Walker County, Alabama. Okay. And so mm -hmm. what, what did you find out about Dora, Alabama and Walker County? Walker County um, was a... I would say evolution in trading industry, just countrywide. They had a coal mine boom in Walker County, and people were migrating to that area from all over Alabama. And for the Kemp family, it wasn't that far of a journey because they were already in Fayette, Alabama, and the Berry, Alabama area, which is still a part of Fayette County and the Walker County area. And so we realized that there was a lot of history right there. And we zeroed in on that because Dora was every mining town had its own community. So that meant that if they started a mining business, they built a school, they built businesses, you know, they did their shopping there. They lived there. So it was easier mm -hmm. to sort of zoom in like you do with Google Earth and zero yes. in on just Dora and get information from there. So uh, in, in Dora, so was your family very much involved in the mining business or th were they engaged in other businesses? Well, absolutely. They were they were initially the, the I would call him the patriarch who migrated from Fayetteville or Fayette, Alabama was Cicero A. Kemp. And Cicero Kemp, he actually had married a Naka Kemp during that time, um, I think around 1870, 1874, and he migrated up. I think she passed. I know she passed. And after she passed, he was a widower. And he began to migrate, of course, with his children. He had two or three children. And he began to migrate, of course, because you need living and, you know, money and things like that. So the opportunities was up in that area of Fayette and Walker. And that's where he migrated to. And he took one of his sons up there, which was the great-great-uncle, James H. Kemp Sr. And he uh -huh. took him up there with him. And so he, he remarried Aria Thompson, Aria Kemp became his second wife, and that's when my grandmother was born and all of my aunts. And what did you find out about schools? What, uh, or basically, tell us about that community. What kind of schools did they have? Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of churches did they have? Just kind of set it up for us so we could understand what you were looking at when you, you said, you know, Dora, Alabama was kind of one of your first stops in your research. Absolutely. Well, Dora, it, it was a mining town primarily. And so during that era of the 19 of the 1880s, you know, education had yet to really become formalized and broad as in terms we see it today, like public education. 
or even private education. It was it was something that it was like, hey, children went to the mines to work. Everybody was working in the mines. And so uh-huh. they began, Alabama legislature had began to pass laws to make it important to have a degree of education because the citizens in that were calling for that now. They wanted the children to be educated, the adults to be a little more educated because, of course, you're dealing with equipment and it's dangerous. So you had to have a certain degree of competency. And for college schools, that was like in the mid-1880s. They began, the legislature began to say, okay, we'll appropriate some money and things of that nature. So they started setting up schools in places like Mobile, Talladega, Tuscaloosa area, Birmingham. And that's where the opportunities to get more education begin to open up. And so for the Kemp family, the parents were already literate, according to their census records. They said they, they could read, they could write, they could speak English. And the children were also being educated. And the oldest son, which was James Kim Sr., was already at Tuskegee um, College, a university, he was studying tailoring. And so this was by 1900s or 19, yeah, 1900, 1890, 1900, education was already on the radar for the Kemp family. Right. So you saw you saw that value uh, that was presented to you. Now, as you as you looked at the education system, just tell us, I mean, were you talking about uh, historically black universities or schools that were called color schools? Were they private mm-hmm. boarding schools? Kind of mm-hmm. help us understand a little bit more about what you found out about the schools. No problem. They It was a combination of all that you just mentioned. Um, Tuskegee had just been started as well. I think that was July 4th in the late 1800s. I want to say around um, the 1880s. So they had just started Tuskegee. They had just started uh, some of the schools in Talladega. They had just started the Slater schools. There was funding from the Peabody and Slater funds for colored schools. Um, The churches, the religious institutions were coming into the area, of course, and setting up their private schools. So you had a combination of of hands involved with educating everybody there and especially schools set aside for the colors because racism was still an issue, you know, but fortunately it was enough of a balance where they could exist, coexist with their schools and still work in the mines and still build a community and have a family. Okay. And so, mm-hmm. so you saw this now, were these schools, I mean, were they given kind of special names like the normal school or agriculture and training schools? Again, all of the above. Some schools, I think one of the earliest schools was called uh, Lincoln University. It was from the beginning, it was a university. And then um, some of the schools were normal schools. I believe like Talladega had a normal department. If it didn't have a normal school title on it, then some of the schools had a normal department. So this concept of educating colors who wanted to get education, it was just big. It was like a big issue at that time. You know, they're, they're like 1865, you know, civil wars kicked off. They're 15 years from that trying to rebuild. So basically it was about rebuilding at that time, the South and Alabama was no exception. It was trying to rebuild as well. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Now, I noticed that you have a chapter it's called A Miracle of Good Shepherd mm-hmm. from 1922 to 1944. Tell us about, I mean, what, what does this mean, A Miracle of Good Shepherd? Well, gen- in general, you know, when, when the term Good Shepherd is used, especially in a religious context, it's, it's affiliated with 
the Savior Jesus Christ and his ability to perform miracles. And so the miracle in that title is saying that here's a, a post-slavery era in America, it's post-emancipation, it's war, bloodshed everywhere. And from the emergence of this, you get a group of uh, citizens, people who have come out now, they've been recognized legally as citizens. They're still fighting for their full recognition as human beings. Nonetheless, they are attaining education. They are attaining uh, ownership of their homes. And this is specifically in the Kemp vein. They had ownership of their homes. They had um, started businesses and they owned real estate and they had um, education and were getting college degrees. And part of the group down there in that area was the AMA. They originally was a group called the Mende Association who was responsible for those familiar with the movie Amistad. They were the ones who freed the Amistad through the court system. And so when they merged and it became the AMA, the American Missionary Association, they were one of the groups along with the Baptists that were setting up historical black colleges and universities throughout the South. And uh -huh. that's one of the groups who also was involved with the what they call the Great Migration, when people began to flee the, the I guess you call it the sharecropping and the Jim Crow laws and the horrors of racism in the South, they began to go up north and seek opportunities. Well, of course, the AMA church and a lot of these Baptist churches had already had uh, positioning in the northern cities. So this whole enthusiasm followed them up into the north in the industrial age where they were able to set up churches and schools and community centers and things of that nature. And for the Kemp family, that meant coming to Chicago in the 1920s and organizing to set up what would become the 5,000-member Good Shepherd Church, um, the Congregational Good Shepherd Church, which is still on 57th and Prairie in Chicago, and as well as they set up what was called the Good Shepherd Community Center, where millions of blacks coming from the South could come and get access to over 19 social service programs. So whether it was, you know, learning how to uh, deal with etiquette, whether it was dealing with um, your social issues, your birth certificates, child care, uh, theater, arts, music, uh, civil liberties, labor rights. It was a ton of programs going on in that center. And the center became, later was renamed the Parkway Community House, and it relocated from 55th and King Drive, or excuse me, from 51st and King Drive over to the southeast side of Cottage Grove and 67th Street. And you know, as you as you're talking about the this migration and the role mm. that the American Missionary Association uh, played in helping with that transition, what mm. kind of involvement did you find documentation of your family uh, participation with the community centers and any other oh. uh, social activities in the Chicago community? Oh, all, all tons of documents. I mean, one of the, the seminal documents, which was in the heirloom book, was what was a 5,000-member directory, and it had the, literally the names and addresses of the members in 1920. I think that was 29 that book covers, and it had the pretty much what was going on. It had the advertisements from all of the business and entrepreneurial people, the Jesse Bingers, the Johnson Johnsons, the... um. Robert Abbott said a defender. It just had a ton of wealth of information in there. And it also listed the founders of the church, which my grandmother, 
um, her mother and their three, four sisters, as well as her brother, they were all designated as founders and helped the church get off the ground. Wow. Now you mentioned, I mean, 5,000 names. Did I hear you say mm -hmm. 5,000 names? Yes, they have 5,000 members. And at this time, this, this directory, which is probably about, you know, four inches by maybe five inches, but it, it's thick and it just has uh, small print names just throughout this whole book. And it mentions the, um, it mentions how much um, money they were accumulating. It mentioned the social service initiatives they were involved in, the education, the civil rights. It had the mention of the pastor who had just came, or Harold Kingsley. And Kingsley, as um, it would happen to turn out, was actually a graduate of Talladega College as well and was attending the school the same time my grandmother was there. So that was a significant thing that came out. So here you have, you see a pattern and a deliberate initiative from the AMA as well as the UCC Congregational Church, as well as the different, the NAACP and ton of other um, social service and civil liberty and labor unions, all of these people were making a collective effort to help blacks migrate successfully into the northern city of Chicago, specifically. Mm-hmm. And uh, someone, want, there's a question, uh, or is this yeah. directory digitized? Do you have the only copy? Tell us about it. <laughs> Do you know? I, yes, I have, if we want to know. <laughs> I have yet to see another copy. Uh, I do have an original copy, which is a part. Another thing about The Love Without Roots, it's a multimedia project from the beginning. So there, it's the book, but the book is supplementary to the visual museum exhibit that we put on display. And then we have also the lecture, which gives more insight and we allow people to ask questions and give even more clarity on how this process and how they can do it for themselves. And then we had the visual arts part of it, which because in the Cube Theater, they had a listing of, there was a, a group called the Negro Arts, Artists of Chicago group. And this has become the legendary artist of for visual arts and these names like Richmond Barte, Arthur Diggs, Charles Dawson, Edward Scott, these have become legendary, um, I would just call them craftsmen in the art circle. And then we have the film project, which is going through character development as we speak. So this is just a multimedia project based on this whole history. And so are you going to digitize the directory or at least make it available for others to you know, at least go through and see those names? You know, I would love to uh, have that process facilitated. I know that the um, current pastor at the Church of Good Shepherd approached me about somehow putting um, a, an exhibit of sorts and making it accessible at the church and making it, you know, I would love to team up with the AMA or whomever to help facilitate digitizing and making it available for the people to get access to. Cause it's a part of history that um, fortunately we have it to preserve and needs to be preserved. It, it definitely needs to be preserved. I mean, think of all the people that, that were a part of the great migration and their names are in this book. And as you mentioned, some of the founders in, in this book are, are your family members. Well, mm -hmm. I want you to, we're going to take a quick break, come back because okay. there's just a lot more that I want you to share with, with the listeners. So quick break and we'll okay. be right back. I'll be in. Mm -hmm. 
Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded through Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Now, you have been listening to James H. Commander share his family's story, Love at Our Roots, How Freedom Became a Force for Change. Mm -hmm. And James, I want you to continue to tell us about some of the changes and how freedom became a force for change. Now, I noticed in your book that your grandmother, is that Marjorie Angeline Kemp? Yes. That she has a letter. She received a letter from W. uh, Du Bois. So why don't you tell everyone about this letter dated October 10th, 1927? Well, that particular letter was one in a series of correspondence that her and W.B. Du Bois had on a regular, and that particular one, I believe you're referring to the one about when he wrote his novel, and he was attempting to get data, because I think it was based out of Chicago, and he wanted some specifics um, for the book, and she had access, of course, to uh, tons of teachers and librarians, because she had created what was the um, a way to teach Mentally challenged, uh, I think they would call him like, so, you know, retarded is the impolitically correct word to use, but that's what it was. It was a program that was instituted in Chicago citywide, and so that's that was her claim to fame, and so she had access to a lot of information, and he wanted access to that. And so where was this letter? This letter, that is one of many letters that... um. You can go to, I believe, Massachusetts, and there may be another place as well. They have an archive where they have those type of letters available. I think his son or one of his descendants, Dubois' descendants, is one of the um, controllers of the estate. And And then some of the universities have the letters. So there are different letters that are still available, and that's where people can get access to it and read it. And is that where you got access to the letter? Yes, that's one of them. And I think in the beginning of the book, I make reference to that, that 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 particular letter is one of those that came from that database. So, yes. Oh, okay. Tell us that database again, just in case others may be interested in in looking at that database. Yes, that is the the letter from Marjorie Kemp and the Dubois Papers, Special Collections and University Archives at the University of Massachusetts Amherst Libraries. Okay, and and so that's where you uh, received that letter. Now, I noticed that you you just have lots of different documents, and one of them Mm -hmm. is the Illinois Democratic Women's Charity (laughs) and Employment League. Now, tell us about that letter, because you're kind (laughs) of tapping into some sources and, and pulling in documents that perhaps some of us may not even think of looking at. 
Well, that's a phenomenal source document just because it has a listing, again, of who's who, um, women, activists, wow, I mean, so many phenomenal women on that page. It's just pretty much the who's who of social, political activity during that era, and that's just what it is. The letter she wrote to uh, Du Bois, uh, because he had made a comment to her in one of the letters that, you know, if Cermak uh, gets your support, then he'll be mayor of Chicago. And since he wound up yes. winning, you know, she was telling him, yeah, you were right. You know, uh, he won and that kind of thing. So it was a it was a celebratory moment they were sharing. And um, yeah, that, that's a really good, good letter. It's pretty cool. <laughs> and, and how did you uh, come across this letter? Again, just the archives, just was searching around and doing a, um, everything from Google to just uh, contacting folks if I needed to, whatever you need to do to get that kind of information. And that's just pretty much all I was doing, just researching. That was one of the things I think um, it came up because I found a book and we had the Crisis Magazine as well in the archives. So it, it was like once I saw one letter where he corresponded specifically about the book, I became curious in terms of how often were they communicating. And so it turned out that um, Dubois had been in contact with her because the Kemp family was a, had safe houses throughout the South and Alabama and Oklahoma for Walter White and, you know, how members of the NAACP during the lynching campaigns. And so that's how they were involved with the NAACP in the, in the, in the turn of the 1900s. And um, also the Slater School, where Marjorie Kemp was teaching at in Birmingham. They had printed articles about that in the Crisis Magazine. So Dubois and, and the Kemp family and the NAACP went way back. And so that was just one of those things that assured that relationship was a very solid one and that they maintained. Right. And, you know, as I also continue to look through some of your your documents, you show mm -hmm. that your family was very much involved in the labor movement. So Absolutely. tell us more about that. Well, of course, you know, the Pullman Porters and that whole initiative where, you know, uh, giving employment opportunities and fair treatment to blacks as they were attempting to leave the sharecropping system. Um, that was big at that time. And so uh, quite naturally, James Kemp Jr. now was very active. He became the president. He found, first of all, he founded a union. Um, and then he became the president of another union. I think it was a janitor's union. And so he was very active in the labor movement as well. And they wound up working with a lot of the, the brotherhood of the sleeping car porters and wound up... Um, actually overseeing the institution that they set up for the founder in the later years, around the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Him and his wife, Maida Springer Kemp, who was another labor leader, international labor leader, was just very active in that, that type of labor movement for maids and butlers and housekeepers and the, the only opportunities you could get postal clerks um, during the, the 1920s in Chicago. So they wound up being defenders of the rights of those people, and that's just pretty much how it worked, you know, um, for like, what, 60, 70, 80 years, a lifetime. That's what they did. 
that's that's what they did. Well, mm-hmm. also, you know, I just I'm I'm asking you these questions, but really I want you to just continue to tell us what you you feel uh, has been the most significant aspects of your research, and then take us again through some of the sources that you found valuable as you explored the journey of your family, how freedom became a force for change for them. Well, well again, uh, because the sources are so numerous, and this is why we have such a multimedia engagement for people to get access to this information, but A. Philip Randolph, of course, was the head of that labor movement, and then you had the International Ladies, Ladies Garment Workers Union, which was made of Springer Kemp's. Um, Stumping Ground, her father was a part of um, that movement with the Pullman Porters, and one of her relatives as well was a part of uh, Marcus Garvey's uh, nursing brigade. So, again, there was a tradition in the Kemp family, the Springer family, with just social service. And um, the information came from biographies. I was tapping into different uh, books that was dealing with that era. Um, there was a lot of family heirlooms, pictures, photographs, documents um, that sort of categorized what was going on, church history, you know, had that kind of information, news articles, just again, post office union newsletters um, was another great source to get information. Um, there were what you call progress report booklets, a Monroe work. Monroe Nathan work was an early PhD for the University of Chicago, went to work with of the Tuskegee Institute, and he compiled updates on the graduates as they came out in 1901 or 1910, whatever. And so this, these were some of the databases where I was able to get the pieces and the breadcrumbs and just follow that trail back to the origins of these family members. And and as you you know we we kind of talked and went in kind of a lot of different directions. But when mm-hmm. you first started, did you have a, a research plan laid out, or did this information kind of flow from this scrapbook to well, push you in the various directions you went to find more information about your family? Well, it was both. It was it was flowing from the book because again that Q bulletin. It had the names of the who's who. So anytime you looked up any one of those names, you already had a biography. You had a direction. You had a timeline. You had an evolution. And so, I mean, when you're talking about people like Catherine Dunham, I mean, that's a pioneer person who had a life works of things. When you talk about Paul Green or, or Georgia Douglas Johnson, Eugene O'Neill, these people have, they, they're legends. So they have a life's work. And so when I first started the book, it was a, it was clear that it would have to be timeline oriented and it would have to be based yes. on stages of evolution and social development. And so mm-hmm. that was the first the outline was the first step was to have a parameter in which to categorize the different subject matters and facts and data that came out. So you definitely had order and structure from day one. And the mm-hmm. book and, and the book and the heirloom, it just served as a a fountain, if you will, it just was flowing with information that you just had to document, categorize. And that's why in the back of the book, there's absolutely a bibliography. There's a, a footnote. There's all this information and source references so people could follow up and hopefully get sparked and inspired to build their own bibliography and tell their story. 
Oh, yes. And, and, you know, this is one of the things that uh, we've encouraged people to to tell their stories, put mm-hmm. the stories in writing and also to cite their yeah. sources. And yeah. it's it's very helpful to to be able to look at the back of your book and to look at your mm-hmm. notes and to see yeah. some of the resources that you use, some of which would uh, certainly give others an idea of, of where to begin. I see that launching a social movement, you looked at the Pullman Porters and the rise of protest politics in Black America from 1925 to 1945. And you also talked about probate records, the Alabama yeah. Courts. And so tell us what were you able to pull out of the probate court records that helped you kind of get an idea of what was going on with your family? Well, this is where search engines like Family Search and Ancestry.com and others come into play. Um, Family Search had information that Ancestry did not have. So this is the benefit of using all of them. And it only had a blurb that there was an estate record in the National Archives in Montgomery, Alabama. So that simply suggested that a trip would have to be taken down there, and that's what I did. I loaded up the car, you know, and took a, a three, four-hour drive to Montgomery and went in there and accessed the record. And it, it also revealed additional family members. And so inside yes, this yes. estate record, it also outlined more glimpses at who they were as people. It talked about the the money they were paying to send the children to boarding school. It talked about the money they were paying for, of course, the real estate property and, you know, things of that nature. It talked about their involvement with social organizations like the Masonic, the Accepted Free and Masonic Lodge that um, the paternal Cicero Kemp was a member of. So it talked about things of that nature that gave you a clearer idea of what was important? What were these, these, these character traits of the family? And it also talked about who was administrating the state, which, of course, my, gran- my grandmother, Marjorie, was one because she was educated. So she had the intelligence to go in and talk with the courts and get those things squared away. Um, you also had Joseph Rufus, who was educated. So he was facilitating the state for an uncle, Louis Kemp, who was also a coal miner who had passed away around the same time that Cicero did. So that was one of the benefits of going into the estate records because you got access to just things that you couldn't get online in a database and you wasn't going to read in a book anywhere and you couldn't just say to Google. So you have to be willing to take the physical steps to go into the libraries to get information. And I'm really glad that you're saying that because while it is extremely valuable and we have a lot more resources now online than we've ever had before, you're right. It is important to get, sometimes you have to get in the car and drive to the courthouse and look at the original records. And as you said, it just sounds like you found a lot of information in the original probate records. Absolutely. Because, again, we're talking about the the specific times. For example, census records are great skeletons. Um, They provide great breadcrumbs. They give you bits and pieces of data that when you look at them closely, they direct you to more of the story. Now, for example, when you go into the probate record, someone passed in 1911. Well, the census was done in 1910. So there's information 
1911, that's just not on the census records. So when you go into a situation like that, there's this valuable information that's just filling in the blanks or putting more meat on the skeleton that the census records gave us. And so that's one of the advantages of going into the estate records. Um, yeah, I mean, besides that and, and giving you more details about specifically where someone may have passed that or maybe the circumstances of how a person may have passed. You know, instructions on how people are to carry out their legacy or, you know, what was the uh, intentions in the will. I mean, things like that. I mean, you glean a lot of information from an estate record. You're right about that. And, I, and I'm mm -hmm. glad that, you know, at least you're mentioning the, the value of these, the census records. But clearly, mm -hmm. as you said, the census puts you at a point in time. It's a yeah. skeleton. But yeah. you have to put meat on the bones, Absolutely. and so th this is this is what you're you're saying that you were able to do. Well, yeah. is there? Are you at a point where you can give us any more information, or do you feel that we have a pretty idea of uh, what what you have uncovered about your family, and uh, can you give us any more? Well, of course, there's always more to give. And I would encourage, encourage anyone, hey, if they have a lead, a museum, a college, a library, and would love for us to come in, reach out. And we bring their whole exhibit because it's just too much to unfold in this small amount of time. And usually we have this whole presentation so people can get a more roundabout picture of what this entails. Another thing that was critical, I would say, we, we didn't mention the um, the land records. When you look into the founding of a particular area, like, for example, the Kemp family, like, how did they get the name? You know, generally, African-Americans, they say they took the surname of a plantation owner, or they just made up a name, or they grabbed the name. So names are great indicators for social migrations and explains the behavior patterns across the country. So an example of the Kemp family, that name goes all the way back to Virginia. And so we were able to trace when the, when the lands were given in Georgia, we found out, hey, wait a minute, these people came from South Carolina. So when we look at a census record and one of my, I think my grandmother was the one who said her parents, one of her parents came from South Carolina. We say, well, wow, where did she get that idea from? Well, now we're able to trace that when the lands were given up in the Georgia lottery, some of those Kemp people migrated to get the land. And some of the Kemp people, when the Alabama lottery was done, they went to Alabama and that's how they wound up in Fayette. And so you have a record from the United States. They have a land record and you can pull that up and find out when did someone with that name first come in that territory. So that's how we know. The name Kemp wound up in Fayette, Alabama in 1850 and 1840 because it's on a record somewhere, and we know that. So uh -huh. that's another thing we didn't get a chance to talk about. And so another thing we didn't talk about was how a lot of records are only coming out. They have yet to be digitized. They're sitting on shelves. There's bits and pieces of information we found out about the Kemp's in last, I would say, December of 2014. And so it was a missing link that connected Alabama to Georgia to South Carolina to Virginia. So that's important to keep in mind, too, that you have to keep following up. You have to keep paying attention and, and just keep building your database up. It's, a, it's an organic and evolving process.
It, it certainly is. It, it most mm -hmm. definitely is. And, and the Kemp's, you'll see the Kemp's in Louisiana. So you Absolutely. start, you know, tracing how did they get to Louisiana? And you see them in mm -hmm. South Carolina, as you said, and, and Virginia, North Carolina. Now, yeah. I know that you have a, a foundation, an educational foundation called the Kemp Spalding Educational Foundation. Tell us about mm -hmm. that foundation. That is, that is the foundation that's in place as we begin to evolve and get these initiatives off the ground, we absolutely, because we've been involved with social service work since 1999, and I was blessed to be able to work with a great group at the uh, Future Foundation out in Four Heights, Illinois, the um, Family Life Center at Chicago State University, the Abraham Lincoln Center, legendary for social service work in Chicago, Gallery 37, and the Caprini Green uh, program out at the YMCA up north in Chicago. So I was fortunate enough over the years to, to work with social service agencies, and we want to continue that work and the programs that we created in the arts and literacy and computer technology. And that's going to be the umbrella organization that we bring those programs up under. That's the Kemp Spalding Educational Foundation. Okay, and and does the Educational Foundation focus on uh, genealogy and searching for your roots, or do you have other missions involved in this uh, foundation? It, it will absolutely be a wing for searching your family and genealogy. That would absolutely be a part. Uh, it would be a travesty not to have that involved. So that would definitely be among the literacy, the reading and writing, the entrepreneurial, as well as the computer technology and music arts programs that we have already been working with over the years. So we definitely are going to include genealogy. And I'm glad you brought that up because in 2010, when we first started off this project, I was working with a group and it's created a group with the Greenville Technical College called Creative Arts Focus on Training or Craft for short. And we actually took the students, it was like hundreds of them we put together our birthday cards and a plaque and we sent it to Frances Taylor Dunham Catlett while she was alive to thank her for over 100 years of service and she sent us a very beautiful uh, card in response and said that she had been wondering about the names and the pictures because we found original pictures from the cube in the Chicago Daily News and we sent her those pictures and she said she'd been trying to remember the names and the people's faces for years, and we helped her do that. So that's something that we would love to keep doing and getting youth involved with genealogy and connecting with their elders and building bridges. I think that's very empowering, and we can do that. Yes, and it, it goes back to the whole title, Love at Our Roots. Absolutely. That perhaps if we could empower or get the youth to, to really look at their roots, then perhaps mm -hmm. they may even take on a whole new perspective about life and about future. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's ideally what the Kemp Spalding Educational Foundation would be a continuum of, because this is something educating you and educating the public is something that the Kemp family has been dedicated to for over a century. So that's just an honor and I, for me to contribute to that and an example for others hopefully to do the same with their family members. That's right. Well, do you have any any parting words of wisdom before we close out the show tonight? Wow. I would just say um, stay inspired and keep your, your light of faith lit um, in searching for family history. Um, it is absolutely critical for a roadmap in the present day as well as for the future. Um, 
I hope that people have been inspired and found some use to this, and hopefully we can continue the dialogue and they, I can be of a great help to others to find their way home with the breadcrumbs. Well, thank you so much. And again, I also hope that individuals have been inspired and will stay inspired and will continue to search their roots and find the stories, mm-hmm. all of the stories in their families. If we have a comment coming out from True Lewis, keep digging, okay. put the meat on the bone. And and that's it. That's right, Troop. Keep (laughs) digging and keep the meat on the bone. I definitely agree with you. Well, I just want to just tell everyone, you know, just thank you so much for tuning into the show tonight. And James, thank you for sharing Love at Our Roots, How Freedom Became a Force for Change. Thank you for sharing the resources, the, the nuggets and the gems that you were able to pull out of that hundred year old scrapbook. Thank you so much to your great aunt for at least gathering that information. So many of us see stuff thrown away, but she didn't throw it away and she did offer it to you. So thank you so much for coming on. And remember everyone, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. Also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and beyond blog talk radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice's BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to everyone joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, James. Good night, Bernice. Thank you. I have four minutes left.